weeks ago, Newsweek magazine ran a cover article with the provocative title, Is Your Baby Racist? Under the sensational title meant to start startle us, the article reported on several fascinating new studies of racial consciousness and attitudes among children. Among these studies was one conducted by a team led by Dr. Phyllis Katz that followed a group of children from six months to six years old, looking periodically at their reactions to people with different skin colors. Dr. Katz found that the six-month-old babies showed significant awareness of human difference. They stared significantly longer at pictures of people whose skin color was different from that of their parents. Now, this does not make babies racist, but it does point out something that should be obvious to all of us. Even small children notice that people are different from one another. And yet, we spend an awful lot of time and energy trying to teach children that everyone is the same. For years, this has been the accepted way of trying to teach them to treat everyone the same way. And then we wonder why this education isn't working the way it's supposed to. Those of us committed to building a world in which the differences in humanity no longer separate us into privileged and oppressed classes are left wondering, is there a better way to teach our children? Fortunately, there is. Several other studies referenced in this article look at educational methods and the attitudes of children around race. They found, interestingly, that what worked in creating attitudes of fairness and justice across racial differences was talking directly with children about race and racism. These studies found that we have just been too abstract with the concrete thinkers in our midst. Purple and blue puppets singing about everyone being the same is not readily translated in the minds of children into better attitudes towards people who are different than they are, precisely because our children are not purple or blue puppets, and they realize we're all different. Moreover, these studies found that pretending that racism doesn't exist is not a way to make it not exist. Why? Because children instinctively pick up on the racism that's all around them. And if we pretend it's not there, the message they get is not, racism is wrong. It's, racism is so normal that we're not even going to talk about it. I don't think it's just children who need to be offered a new and different way to talk about race and racism. I think people of all ages would benefit from a forthright discussion of difference. And that we don't do anyone, no matter their age, a favor by engaging in the topic of race from some metaphorical, abstract place. I also think that spiritually, we need to come to a place where human difference is at least as valued as human similarity. When I was working as a hospital chaplain, one of our required seminars was entitled Pastoral Care with African Americans. In the major trauma center for Central North Carolina, we were quite likely to encounter many African-American patients, and the department rightly wanted us to be effective in our work with them. Some in my class bristled at the notion that pastoral care with African-American patients would be any different 
from pastoral care with European American patients or patients from any other racial or ethnic background. It was natural, I think, having been taught that we're all the same, to resist thinking that maybe we are more different than we've been led to believe. So to begin, our leader for the day shared with us his theology of human difference. Now, his perspective was very deeply rooted in a conservative Trinitarian Christianity in which Jesus is seen at once as fully human and fully divine. So being the good Unitarian Universalist, I had to translate it into my own words. To pretend that humans are all different is to ignore that each of us as a spark of divinity that comes from the same source within us. That each of us has blood coursing through our veins and a heart beating in our chest. To pretend that humans are all the same is to ignore the very real differences that exist among us and to downplay the beauty and wonder of human diversity. We are all alike in some ways. We are all different too. To pretend that one or the other paradigm explains all of humanity is dangerously naive. In the class, we talked about the attitudes of many black people in the South about religion. We talked about the ways in which power and privilege play themselves out when one walks into a hospital room as a representative of an institution. In order to talk about these things, though, we had to face the reality of human difference in concrete terms. We had to come to some peace with the fact that when a white man in a suit and tie walks into the hospital room of a black patient, even if he is there for her comfort and support, that patient will have a reaction based in part in the way our society treats the differences between them. Later in that internship, we face the reality of difference from the other side as well. When one, the one African-American member of our class was reporting on an on-call experience in which she, despite being dressed professionally and wearing a name tag that clearly read chaplain in quite large letters, she was assumed to be a janitor by a white patient. We are all the same, and we are all different. And no matter what we want to be the case, those differences matter, and we must talk about them. Sociologist Alan Johnson, in his book, Privilege, Power, and Difference, writes that talking openly about power and privilege isn't easy, which is why people rarely do so. The reason for this, he continues, seems to be a fear of anything that might make dominant groups uncomfortable or pit groups against each other, even though groups are already pitted against one another by the structures of privilege that organize our society. The fear keeps us from looking at what's going on, he writes, and makes it impossible to do anything about the reality that lies deeper down. When I put this sermon on our calendar, our nation's eyes and ears were focused on Cambridge, Massachusetts, where a slight 59-year-old professor who walks with the aid of a cane was arrested and charged with disorderly conduct in the foyer of his own home. Of course, you probably know more details than these. 
The professor was the well-known African-American scholar Henry Louis Gates, Jr., known around Harvard Yard as Skip. He was arrested after becoming quite upset with a white police officer, Sergeant James Crowley, who had been sent to investigate the report from a neighbor of a possible burglary in progress. You see, Dr. Gates had just returned home from an overseas trip to find his front door stuck shut, and he had just managed to get in when the police showed up and demanded identification from him. It's a complicated story, one I've tried to retell with sensitivity to all perspectives, but it's impossible in our society to separate this story from the racial backgrounds of all of the people involved. Why? Because despite the fact that we tell ourselves over and over again that race doesn't matter, it does. A white professor would not likely have had the police called on him in the first place. A white professor wouldn't have had a deeply ingrained suspicion of the police. A white professor might have been given the benefit of the doubt by the officer responding. Education professor Shelley Tochluck in her book, Witnessing Whiteness, First, Step Towards, First Steps Toward an Anti-Racist Practice and Culture, writes of the importance of frankly naming and confronting the problems with our society, and then going on to demonstrate that we can create something better. We must, she warns us, get over our fear of talking about race and racism. We must open our eyes to really see the world around us, open our ears to hear how others see that world differently than we do. We must understand that in the 21st century United States, a culture exists that privileges whiteness and Northern European ways of being, a culture that values behaviors that perpetuate the systems already in place. In the end, Tochluck suggests eight values, eight, right? that those of us seeking to dismantle white privilege should use to define the way we operate in the world. And I'd like to share those eight values with you. They are, first, multiplicity. Each of us is capable of any, number, any of a number of reactions and of following any of a number of pathways in our lives. Each of us are complex and imperfect beings. None of us is purely good and none of us is purely bad. We each have both of those within us. Second, interconnection. We do not exist as individuals in isolation from one another. Our existence is dependent on being part of groups and communities and in relationship to those around us. As Tochluck writes, we can give up individualism without sacrificing our sense of individuality. Third, passion. Our heart and body have as much to teach us as our head. That we need to pay attention to the things that stir us emotionally and spiritually. Value four is obligation. We need to feel an obligation to others, an obligation to society at large. We must choose to confront privilege. We must choose to name racism wherever we see it. We must support one another in doing this work. We must feel obligated to that task. Value five is vigilance. 
we must, she writes, recognize that it is part of the system for white people to turn away from thinking about race. It is a necessary part of how racism perpetuates itself that so many of us can ignore it and thus do. Thus, we must stay vigilant so that we don't fall into patterns of complacency and comfort, so that we stop beating ourselves up when we make mistakes, and we will, and so that we can keep each other awake and aware. Value six is accountability. It is impossible for white people to do the work of anti-racism alone. Those of us who are white must develop relationships of accountability in which our work is measured and in some ways directed by people of color. Seventh, she writes of historical memory. The way our society is structured today has roots in our history, as does the way we see what is there and what is possible. This was evident even in this morning's conversation with the children, a totally unscripted conversation, I assure you. We are educated, however, to ignore the threads of racism in that history. We must do what we can to learn the history of race and racism in order to be able to confront it in the present and to dismantle it in the future. And the eighth and final value that Chili Tachluk writes about is reconciliation. Racism, you see, hurts us all. It tears us apart. It breaks our wholeness. It wounds our souls. It will not be destroyed by forgiving and forgetting. Thus, a deeper, more meaningful process is necessary to bring us into right relationship with ourselves and with those who are different from us. The process of reconciliation. We need to work on healing the wounds, new and old, that exist in our society. Now, Shelley Tachluk writes these things for white educators, but all of us, no matter our racial background or our walk of life, all of us can work on making these eight values an integral part of how we live. It will be harder for those of us who are white because we have been taught to resist all eight of those things. We have been taught that they are not necessary. We have been taught, you see, that we are all the same, and this is only a piece of the story, for we are all different, too. And this is a beautiful and difficult thing. <laughs>